Hello, greetings. Thanks for joining us today. We're so thankful that you've, you're here. I'm Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. One of the great questions of existence is what happens after we die? A lot of people wonder about that question. There are a few people who are consistent materialists. They don't believe that there's anything beyond this life, and so they think that when we die, nothing happens. There's nothing but this life. But for most of us, uh, regardless of their religious beliefs and the content of those beliefs, there is a confidence that there's an afterlife. Somehow, in some form, life continues after death. And a lot of people, especially here in America, understand the afterlife in at least pseudo-Christian terms. You hear a lot of stories about people believing in going to heaven, that there is a bright light there, that you come into the presence of God, there's a feeling of peace and things of that nature. A lot of people find Eastern religious ideas uh, very uh, exciting and interesting. The idea that at death they'll obtain enlightenment, nirvana. They might get reincarnated or something of that sort. And there's a few subjects that attract folk religion as much as the afterlife. Confidence that the departed maintain some kind of presence with people. Uh, they may send various kinds of signs, that they're some kind of protective angel, that they're in the stars, things of that nature, that are not unlike a lot of the pagan and animist beliefs uh, of previous generations. But what about the afterlife according to what is made known in the Old New Testament in Scripture? What ought to be the Christian's viewpoint and hope in regards to what will happen after we die? To begin with, uh, it's important to understand that in the Old Testament, the afterlife is primarily spoken of in terms of a place called Sheol in Hebrew. Sheol is the underworld. It's a place for shades. And it's not very unlike the Greek conception of a place that they, the word used to translate Sheol in Greek, Hades. Uh, so in Genesis 37, 35, and 42, 38, and 1 Kings 2 and verse 6, uh, when people talk about death, they talk about uh, going down to Sheol. Uh, in number 16 and verse 33, uh, Korah, who had led a rebellion against Moses, uh, was swallowed up by the earth, and he was taken down alive into Sheol, as the text says. In Psalm 6 and verse 5, uh, those who are in Sheol has lost their memory. They don't praise God. Uh, in uh, Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10, the same premise is there. But in 1 Samuel 28, 11 through 19, the soul of Samuel is conjured up. And he not only has conscious memory, but he tells Saul that he and his sons would be with him in the afterlife the next day. The psalmist expresses hope for deliverance from Sheol in passages like Psalm 1610, 30 and verse 3, 49, 15, and 86 and verse 13. And he expects the wicked to remain in Sheol, or even worse perhaps, a place called the pit in Psalms 9, 17, and 31 and verse 17. And yet the psalmist recognizes that everyone ends up in Sheol, whether they're righteous or wicked in Psalm 88, 3, 89, 14, and 116 and verse 3. Talking about the pit there, we might have reason to believe, based, for instance, on Isaiah 14, 15, and 19, that it is a, a part of Sheol that's deeper, or a worse part of Sheol, reserved for the wicked. But we have to be open to the possibility that that view is itself a projection based on later revelation. Uh, because Sheol and the pit are also used synonymously in the Old Testament at times in parallelism. And so that's the pre predominant view of the afterlife among uh, Israel, uh, even in the Second Temple period. And so, Hades is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Sheol. So, in Acts 2, 27 and 31, when Peter is trying to establish that Jesus uh, was raised from the dead, he appeals to the witness of David in Psalm 16 and verse 10, that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which of course is Hades in the Greek text, in Acts 2, 27 and 31. 
Uh, in G Matthew eleven twenty three and Luke ten fifteen, Jesus denounces the city of Capernaum in terms reminiscent of the king of Isaiah fourteen that we talked about earlier about the pit, uh, in verses twelve through nineteen, declaring they'll be brought down to Hades. He says in Matthew sixteen and verse eighteen that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. And in Luke 16, 19-31, a very famous passage about the afterlife, Jesus speaks about a man, Lazarus and the rich man uh, in terms of Hades. And in this story, uh, which I believe is a parable, Hades is divided into two places. There's Abraham's bosom, which is a comfort place for the righteous, a place of torment for the wicked, and um, also, and the gulf between those two places is fixed. The only other time Hades is mentioned again in the New Testament is in Revelation, where Jesus has the keys of Hades in Revelation 1.18, that Hades follows death as the fourth horseman in Revelation 6.8, and that in Revelation 20.13 and 14, Hades gives up its dead in the final judgment, and Hades itself is cast into the lake of fire. So that's what we see about Hades, or Sheol. But Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, we see beginning of a different conception of the afterlife, that uh, the preacher says that the soul goes back to the God who gave it. And of course, God lives in heaven. And so Luke 23 and verse 43, when Jesus is on the cross, he says to the thief who professed belief in him that today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise, in Luke, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, is identified by Paul as the third heaven. Although, perhaps in contrast, in John 20, verse 17, Jesus tells Mary, uh, Mary not to touch him because he has not yet ascended to the Father, if he were all the way in heaven. Um, the tree of life is in the paradise of God in Revelation 2, and verse 7, which is evoking Eden as the original paradise, the structured garden, and the ultimate of a new paradise that we can see uh, between Genesis 2 and also looking at Revelation 21 and 22. At the same time, Jesus also frequently warned people about the dangers of hell, he uses the term Gehenna uh, as a burning trash pit of suffering and the outer darkness. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so in Matthew 5 and 10, 18, 23, and in parallel passages in Mark and Luke, he talks about Gehenna. You know, better to cut off your arm if it's causing, hand if it's causing you to sin, lest your whole body be cast into Gehenna. Um, do not fear the one who can just kill the body. Fear the one who can uh, kill the body and cast the soul into Gehenna. Um things of the, how will you escape the sentence of Gehenna in Matthew 23 and verse 15. The outer darkness, interestingly, is only uh, to believers. In Matthew 8, 12, 22, 13, and 25, 30, it all refers to uh, some people of God who uh, do not prove faithful and are cast into the outer darkness because of their unprofitability. And so throughout the rest of the New Testament, uh, we are invited to understand the afterlife as entrance into heaven for the righteous while the wicked are consigned to hellfire. So in Philippians 1 and verse 23, Paul wants to go and be with Christ, for that is far better. Uh, but it is more needful for him to stay in the flesh uh, for their sake. Uh, that would... In Revelation 7, 9 through 17, after the beginning of chapter 7, where we have the 144,000 on earth who are uh, marked or sealed by uh, God, then there's the faithful righteous who have passed on for this life in verses 9 through 17, who are envisioned as surrounding the throne of God in heaven. And of course, when it comes to the judgment, we have many passages. Romans 2, 5-11, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9, Hebrews 10, 26-31, and 2 Peter 2, 20-22, all of which speak of condemnation and suffering for those who do not believe God, do not obey the gospel, and who turn aside from the way of righteousness. 
In Revelation 20, 11-15, the final judgment is envisioned as casting everyone who's not found the book of life into the lake of fire, which is the second death. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, we have the first expectation in Scripture of the raising of the dead. And throughout the New Testament, the ultimate hope of Christians is the resurrection of everyone on the final day, on the day of judgment. So Jesus in John 5, 28-29 will evoke the language of Daniel to talk about how all in the tombs will come forth to a resurrection of life, a resurrection of condemnation. In Matthew 27, 52 and 53, when Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, some of the saints came out of their tombs and walked in the midst of Jerusalem and spoke with people, which is an example of resurrection. In Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20 and 21, we have the story of Jesus' resurrection, where the tomb was empty, he was raised bodily from the dead. In Romans 6, 1 through 11, uh, Paul describes baptism as a spiritual type of resurrection and insisted that Jesus died to sin, but arose to sin, to die to sin no more. And he had no more need of dying because he had died once for sin. And death no longer has any power over him, which makes less sense if it's merely talking about his soul, which never died. In Romans 8, 17-25, the ultimate hope of the creation is the redemption of the body, the final adoption as sons when the sons of God are glorified. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul stakes everything on the resurrection of Jesus, speaks about the nature of resurrection, and he talks about the expectation of resurrection on the day of judgment. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul insists on the resurrection as primary, that he, is, he was casting everything off, considering everything of rubbish, that he may obtain uh, the resurrection of the dead. And he describes what that resurrection is at the end of the chapter. That the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 13 through 18, uh, Paul talks about those who are asleep. And asleep are those who are uh, referring to the decaying body and the expectation that they would be raised on the final day. Uh, Paul warned about Hymenaeus and Philitis, who already had said the resurrection was past, and that was heretical, uh, gangrenous in 2 Timothy 2, 16-18. And John assures us in 1 John 3, 1-3, that we will be as Jesus is. And so, the resurrection is the greatest importance in the New Testament. It's the full hope of the afterlife. So, the, the, the scriptures do tell us a lot about the afterlife. We hear about Sheol Hades, we hear about heaven and hell, and we hear about the resurrection. The question comes in, how do we sort it all out? I hope that we can have certain things that we have great confidence in. There is going to be a day of judgment, and there is going to be eternal life and the resurrection for the faithful in the presence of God, and a condemnation for those who have proven disobedient. This is things we can see in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9 and other passages that we've mentioned. But, there's no one fully systematic explanation about how this all is going to transpire. There are different passages that provide part of the picture, and we can put those uh, pictures together in different ways. It should be uh, made evident that good and faithful brethren can disagree on how we can put this picture together. But we're going to seek to put everything together in the most harmonious way possible. And as we do that, though, we need to remember that there's a lot we don't know about the spiritual realm that we can't even begin to understand. And so we can't be too dogmatically insistent on how we put the story together in any one specific way. Uh, so having said that, um, we can be sure of one thing, that uh, there's a crucial understanding of the resurrection that helps us in our conversation. Uh, that resurrection is not life after death, it's life after life after death. And we see this in Jesus. After all, as we said, he, he died on the cross, right? But his soul went to paradise in Luke 23, 43. He did 
His soul did not die on the cross. It was his body that died. His soul went to paradise, and in the resurrection, on the third day, he uh, was restored to full humanity, uh, as well as, of course, always having been full divinity, and in a transformed resurrection body, as we can see in all the gospel accounts. And so that's why Paul speaks of Christians as uh, asleep if they have died, because they await the resurrection in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. In 2 Peter 3.13 and Revelation 21 and 22 are the only New Testament passages that undeniably speak about life after the judgment. And in those passages, it's interesting to note there's a consistency. There's new heavens and a new earth envisioned where the glorified people of God are coming down out of heaven and God is going to dwell in their midst. In Romans 8 and 2 Peter 3, there's two passages talk about how we kind of get there. And depending on which is emphasized, that creation will be restored or purged as through fire, and that leads to this new heavens and new earth. And so life in the resurrection will be glorious and beautiful. The end will be as the beginning. We will have full communion in the presence of God. There will be no more suffering, no more pain, and we will enjoy life indeed. So that's the ultimate goal, is the resurrection. So, uh, the resurrection takes place after judgment, and the thing we really need to reconcile is what happens after we die, and before the day of judgment. Now, when we talk about this, we must be open to a possibility that once a person dies, they leave what we call the space-time continuum, and the next thing they experience is a day of judgment, thus resurrection. So in this situation, once you die, uh, you're no longer bound to this current um, way of understanding space and time, and as far as you know, the next thing is, is the day of judgment. So that's one possibility that we have to entertain, but as we can see, there are portrayals of people after death within the space-time continuum, yet who are in a spiritual place. Like in, if you take Revelation as, as reflecting some kind of reality there in Revelation 7, where you have all this praising of the saints surrounding the throne before the final judgment scene. So, uh, many have suggested that we go to Hades as everyone else has, and in this sense. There's a lot made of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Luke 16, 19 through 31, and of course Jesus himself went to Sheol, or Hades, fulfilling Psalm 16, 10, and Acts 2, 27, 31. But what's interesting is that in the New Testament, after Jesus' resurrection, the expectation is for Christians to die and be with Christ, which is Paul's exact wording in Philippians 1, 23. And Christ, of course, we confess, is in heaven. Now, it's possible that since Jesus said he would go to paradise, and Paul says that's the third heaven, uh, and he went to Hades, perhaps part of Hades is paradise and heaven. That's certainly a possibility. But the portrayals of Hades in Revelation are uniformly negative. Hades, after all, is going to be cast into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, 13 through 14. Another possibility, then, is that the nature of the afterlife was not fully revealed in the days of the Old Testament. And the understanding in terms of Abraham's bosom and torment in parable of Lazarus and the rich man is really perhaps more a picture of heaven and hell uh, in the New Testament as a better way of understanding. Uh, and so maybe that's a better way of looking at it. So what is the most harmonious way of understanding the afterlife? Well, uh, let's try to make the best sense that we can. At death, the soul is separated from the body. The body decays and it awaits the day of resurrection. And Daniel 12, John 5, 1 Thessalonians 4. Then there's the fate of the wicked. For those who do not know God, who did not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, or who turned aside from the truth of God, their soul will begin torment. They will suffer in Hades, or the pit perhaps, until the day of resurrection, something akin to what we see in Luke 16. 
On the day of judgment, they'll be raised unto a resurrection of condemnation. They'll be cast into the lake of fire, the second death, the hell prepared for the devil and his angels, from which there is no return. In Matthew 25, 41 through 46, John 5, 28 and 29, and the picture in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Now, for those who put their trust in God and Christ for salvation, at the point of death, their souls will go to be with God and Christ in heaven, waiting the day of resurrection, as Paul did, Philippians 1.23, as seen in Revelation 7. On that day of judgment, all the saints will arise in the resurrection of life and will enter into the eternal joy of God. They will be glorified as the people of God. They will enjoy full communion with God and life in the new heavens and the new earth as portrayed in John 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, and Revelation 20 and 21. And it's this beautiful picture that we're given of hope, of that final redemption and full reconciliation being the presence of God that leads John to conclude his revelation. Uh, he who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In Revelation 22, 20. And therefore, in our tongue, it should also be, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so this is the afterlife, according to what is made known in the scriptures. The righteous will enjoy the presence of God in eternal life. The wicked will be separated from God and suffer eternal torment. Our ultimate hope is life in the resurrection, not reincarnation, not nirvana. Our afterlife is determined entirely by how we have lived in this life. And that's a very important thing to note throughout all of these portrayals. As set forth in Acts 17, 30-31, that there is a day of judgments that God has decreed. And we know this because he has raised his son from the dead. And so we all do well to submit to the will of God in Christ so we can obtain the resurrection of life and to avoid the resurrection of condemnation. Thank you for your listening today and we hope that you've been benefited by this if you have please share it with your friends family and others on social media if you'd like to learn more about us at the Venice Church of Christ maybe we can be of service in some way we can pray for you we can study the Bible maybe you'd like to come meet with us uh, please find out more about us by uh, finding us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org and also on social media if you'd like to contact me personally, you can reach me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Again, thank you. Have a great day.